When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can think of, has its own history, like onions, throats and heels. Oh, the history of heels is fascinating actually, Sam. It's the it's the rise of the stiletto. Yeah. Uh, it's brilliant. Uh, female domination. Uh, or oh, monks, chunks and hunks. Dunks, flunks, and punks. I would love to do the history of punks. Uh, A very good friend of mine uh, is writing all sorts of things about punks at the moment. Matt Worley, uh, who's a brilliant uh, modern British historian, uh, has been doing all sorts of things about fanzines and everything. I'd love to get stuck into punks. Mm. However, we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of sharks is all about power and status in ancient China. It's about Pompeii, it's about education, irrational fear, the Spanish Americas in the 16th century, and much, much more. Or that the history of backstabbing is, in fact, all about the Bolsheviks and the rise of Stalin. That's one of our special homeschooling episodes that we've done recently. We did very much enjoy doing that as well. I'm still dumbstruck by what Stalin actually got up to, to seize power. It's <laughs> worth listening to. It's a wonderful, wonderful story. Uh, the man not sitting opposite me because we're social distancing. Let me just say that if history were an auction house, he would be the auctioneer bringing the £10, £50, £20, £30, £40 to you, sir, <laughs> bringing the public's attention to the magnificent items on display, but of course, making sure only to sell those items to proper archival institutions and museums with certified conservationary practices. It is the auctioneer of history himself, Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hi, James. Oh, hello, Sam. And again, you put me utterly to shame Mm. uh, because the man not sitting opposite me, because we are social distancing in these grimmest days of lockdown. Well, let's just say that if he were an itinerant peddler, he'd only be one of my favourite characters from Shakespeare, Autolycus himself, the singing peddler um, from The Winter's Tale. Piddler? Um, oh, peddler. 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 <laughs> peddler. Oh, the singing peddler from The Winter's Tale uh, and an all-round uh, mischievous imp. Yeah. Of a character. Not that you're a mischievous imp. Oh, uh, I just couldn't think of anything better. I think I um, might be. So anyway, you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer and my dear friend across town, Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. Um, I like that. I like that very much indeed, James. I might make a list of all of the things that you've called me over over our many, <laughs> many years of doing this ridiculous podcast. Um, Excellent. The, we are. This is episode two, the second, second episode of our um, special on shopping. Um, James and I, we, we did so much research, we decided to spill over into two episodes. So we would get to talk about everything that we wanted to talk about. Um, last time I talked about China in the 18th century. 
Um, James talked about gloves and all sorts of other other wonderful things, a cornucopia of magical facts for you from the past. I would urge you to listen to that. But we're going to carry on with our history of shopping and I think bringing attention to all of the different ways that you can study shopping and and I suppose all of the different themes that you can you can tease out of of shopping which is a really wonderful wonderful historical subject. Indeed it is and one of the things that we're always interested in on this podcast is having a think about historical sources. In the last episode we talked about archaeology from Pompeii that allows us to reconstruct street vendors in ancient uh in ancient rome uh we talked about probate inventories and and inventories uh that allow you to look at the wares of sellers uh and we talked there in particular about about the the kind of haberdashers who were based in elizabethan london we talked also about the kind of peddlers who were itinerant and roamed around the countryside um one of the things that i'm really interested in is the material artifacts that survive about shopping and have you ever come across trade cards sam no because there are there are brilliant collections of trade cards which is um and there are some at the Bodleian Library, there's a big collection at the British Museum, there are some in the Victorian Albert Museum, and these are literally cards printed by shopkeepers advertising their wares. Hmm. And so you are able to piece together, you know, not only the names and items that people have in their shop, but the kinds of where they are. And you're also able to get at things like advertising, so how they advertise their goods. One of the things I'm, of course, interested in is the number of women who are involved in selling uh, clothing and particularly gloves. And one of the best uh, examples that I came across is a woman called Hannah Hatwell, uh, who sold all sorts of haberdasher wares and millinery wares at the Unicorn and Royal Point in London. And we have here a beautiful, uh, a beautiful uh, trade card with what looks like a unicorn. Uh, unicorn sort of rearing up its hooves on a shield surrounded by a, a, a sort of flowery uh, border. And then it gives a description of her. Hannah Hatwell at the Unicorn and Royal Point, the corner of Butcher Hall Lane in Newgate Street, London, sells all sorts of haberdasher wares and millinery wares. Likewise, all sorts, and here's the, here's, here's the money, uh, likewise, all sorts of gloves and mittens, wholesale and retail, and draws the newest patterns for embroidery, cross-stitch, tent-stitch, beadwork, stitching and brussels and shades of silk and worsted. So you get a really rich idea of the way in which people were advertising their wares. But I think also it's not just interesting to think about the degree to which women were involved in selling. I mean, we kind of know that. What I'm really interested in is the experience of shopping, because I think that's much more difficult to get at in the early modern period. How did men and women experience shopping? How does shopping change over time? How do you get that sort of sense of people buying? And I think you can have a look at shopping from people's shopping lists that we were talking about earlier on, and shopping lists certainly survive. You can get at it from letters, 
there's a brilliant collection called the Lyle Letters that I've talked about before, which is basically letters full of information about shopping. So the Lord and Lady Lyle, 1530s, aristocrats living in Calais, where Lord Lyle is the deputy. His wife is the, the lady deputy, and she is writing backwards and forwards to their uh, man of business, uh, who's a sort of, you know, a senior servant in London, who basically picks up things for them in London and then sends them back. So you can get a really good sort of idea about how shopping works there. You can also have a look at household accounts and you can see precisely what people are consuming, how often, when, of what kind. If you're interested in gendered questions about this, you look at women's accounts or you look at household accounts and you have a look at the kind of agency and control that women have over consumption and there's a lot of you know really interesting material there for that but also I think you can think about how a lot of those talk are about proxy shopping so it's about people having servants to shop for them and I think what's fascinating is once we move into the 18th century shopping changes shopping becomes much more personal it becomes a much more haptic and sensory experience by which i mean that touch and smell are much more important as was comparing items so there's a there there are um there are models of um women who are seen as sort of gadflies around the shop who go from one place to another uh they're nicknamed silkworms uh, in popular tradition. In other words, these are the kinds of women in the 18th century who will go to many a shop and they will encourage the shopkeepers to unroll all their silk to show them their wares and then will buy nothing. And the, <laughs> the shopkeepers are forced to put these things you know, back. back. So we know then that there, there is this sort of rise of people who are, you know, who are wanting to actually not get somebody else to shop for them, but to want to go along and look at the quality of things. And this actually has a real impact on the way in which things are designed. And I've been reading this brilliant article by a historian called Kate Smith called Sensing Design and Workmanship, the Haptic Skills of Shoppers in 18th Century London, which is in the Journal of Design History. Um, but also, if you're thinking about how you recreate the purchase of gloves and the trying on of gloves that's something that's much more difficult to do but yet we see it in two 18th century novels in Richardson's Clarissa and in Lawrence Stern's Sentimental Journey and it's two different two very different uh, glove scenes you've got in Clarissa you've got the sort of baddie Lovelace um, who who basically uh, attacked and raped Clarissa. Clarissa goes off and seeks refuge in the Smith's glove shop. Uh, Lovelace tracks her down, goes into the shop, asks the couple to let her, let him into her room, uh, and he, which they won't do. And then he goes downstairs, takes over the shop, brings in a woman from outside and uh, and her servant, uh, and encourages her to, to come and try on the gloves. And so you get a really sort of uh, material uh, experience of putting on the gloves there. It's entirely eroticized because he basically forces the man that she's with, the male servant, to put on a pair of gloves that are too small and he actually splits them. And of course, this has, um, has sort of sexualized sort of connotations there. 
Um, but then we also see in Lawrence Stern's Sentimental Journey, uh, one of the characters is in Paris. And again, he goes in and tries on a, a pair of gloves because he's very sort of infatuated with one of the female protagonists there. And his hands are, in fact, far too small for the gloves. So it's the exactly the opposite. And again, you know, there's an eroticization here, an emasculation of him, you know, not having hands big enough uh, to sort of fill these gloves. So so from these kind of literary depictions, we get a sense of of what it was like to go on and try things and sense them and and the fit and smell and the experience of it. Um, we can also reconstruct uh, male glove buyers. Uh, and I've read a brilliant article in the last year by um, by a brilliant young historian, uh, John Gallagher, uh, who's written about uh, Roger North. And John, in particular, is interested in the way in which we, in which people in the early modern period acquired foreign language skills. And this piece is basically about this um, English gentleman, uh, uh, John North, um, and he's analysed his English-Italian diary. And he, there are several bits where he shows him going into London to buy these sort of extravagant perfumed gloves, which he haggles for, he sniffs. Um, and, you know, and it's for him, the buying of these gloves is about styling himself as an Italianate gentleman. In other words, somebody who is, you know, setting himself up as a sort of fashionable uh, person who is influenced by, you know, classical Italy. Uh, and the home of the Renaissance, but it's something actually that that people were lampooned for during the period. That they're they're almost sort of affected courtiers. Um, but nonetheless, the the purchase of gloves for him and the perfuming of these gloves is in fact part and parcel of his masculinity. So there we are, Sam. Some sort of big questions that I'm in the process of grappling with at the moment about not only about how people purchased gloves, how you got hold of them but how they experienced shopping and how that changed over time. So there we go. It'll be out in the bookshops very soon, folks. James, that was absolutely brilliant. Do you know um, something I've been thinking about a lot is the changing experiences of shopping in the last few weeks because of COVID. And you know, how has shopping changed for you, would you say? Oh, it's uh, extraordinary. I barely go to a shop now. Oh, really? Uh, I do most of my... Uh, most of my shopping online yeah um, and in fact it's so bad uh, that I have had to take my Amazon app off my phone because <laughs> it has almost becoming habitual okay you know and it's that kind of it oh it's it's corrosive yeah it just sort of get it sort of almost hardwires itself in into you and you you almost feel you know that you're getting that kind of um that sort of drug hit every time you sort of purchase or like or something i i think it's the the problem with um with modern technologies and smartphones it's encouraging particular habits yeah yeah sort of relent, relentless uh, engagement particularly with shopping um but i've noticed how things have changed uh, obviously we had uh, the great deal of panic buying right at the start of covid uh, in the spring of last year that was something i'd never experienced before um, we've now got um, lots of queuing. Um, uh, I have to queue up to go into the shop sometimes. There's a, a light system in, the, in my local food shop and you can't go in unless it's green. Um, they've got the, the perspex barriers up around the, the tills. You will have all experienced this. But it made me wonder about how um, 
uh, in the past, the shopping experience might have changed. And I decided to have a look at uh, what the effects of rationing were on um, uh, on the British public during the First World War. Um, I found a wonderful little uh, piece written by um, volunteers at the Bognor Regis Museum. And they've come up with some wonderful, wonderful things which really help you understand exactly what's going on. Uh, but basically by, by looking at an archive of local newspapers. It's helped them, help them to, to re- reframe our understanding of the home front in, in West Sussex. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Um. It's all linked, of course, with naval blockade and the blockade imposed by Germany um, and the threat of the U-boats. Um, in 1917, 46,000 tonnes of meat were lost at sea and 85,000 tonnes of sugar. 1,500 merchant ships are sunk and the loss of over two and a quarter million tonnes of goods. And what you need to realise about this is how shocking it was at the time. And Parliament particularly was stunned that if it carried on like that, the country's food stocks would run out in a matter of weeks. It was as simple as that. There wouldn't be any food left and Germany would have to sue for peace. Because of this price of food soars, there's a great deal of panic buying, huge increased demand. The government responds by putting maximum prices on essential items, um, sugar, butter, margarine, cheese, bacon, tea... And bread. Bread's interesting because it was a a particular problem. Um, it's quite interesting just because there was the home baking explosion, huge um, uh, popularity growth of home baking since we went into lockdown, particularly the first lockdown in the spring of last year. Uh, for most people in the First World War, the main staple of the diet is bread and potatoes. Um, and you've got to bear in mind that at the time, 80% of the wheat used to make bread was actually imported. And all of this is affected by uh, something called the Defence of the Realm Act in the summer of 1914. And it included a huge number of changes that affected people's behaviour. Um, and some of them are really interesting. One of them, you're not allowed to give bread to horses or chickens. That's not allowed anymore. Um, it explains how you make war loaves. Um, which is, it's, it's, it's bread, but it's not entirely bread because it's got potato slush in it. The colour of the bread changes from white to a, a sort of a, 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 a blackish grey. People are advised to eat slowly, uh, just simply because you end up eating less food. Um, they're also advised to keep warm because, again, you will eat less food. Queuing becomes um, a major a major problem. People primarily queuing for bread, potatoes and coal. So not just general queuing like we've had, general queuing to get into Tesco's or co-op or whatever it might be. There's specific queues, which I think is interesting. Queues with, with identities. Um, to get over this, there is a system of rationing that comes in, which, which has another whole history that you could explore. James, something you would uh, like, I'm sure, is the, the history of the forgery-proof rationing books which were created. And they were, they were made with special inks. 
um, and they could all be traced by serial number. So I think your, your interest in inks and writing uh, would would, um, would help us understand that a little bit. Oh, that sounds terrific, Sam. Right up my street. Yeah, doesn't it? Um, and a couple of wonderful examples of, of how this affected locals. Uh, from 1918 in the local newspaper, you've got a case of uh, Thomas Wood. He's a grocer and provision dealer. He's summoned uh, to the courts for supplying sugar, butter, margarine and lard to non-registered customer between the, uh, August the 4th and August the 11th and for not detaching coupons from ration books. The point about this example is that by introducing rationing, suddenly people find themselves breaking the law in a ways they would never have experienced before. It reminds me uh, rather of those people who were caught and fined for carrying lights during the blackout in the Second World War. Anyway, this guy, uh, Thomas Wood, he, he's, um, he's taken to court. He's, he's fined and he blames his daughter. <laughs> Miserable sod. Uh, I'd love to have a, have a word with Thomas Wood about that. So there we are. Um, fascinating stuff. But this, um, I'm just going to read you out uh, a really, really good, powerful letter from May 1917. And um, it is from a guy who is the food controller. <clears throat> Again, I think of all these, these jobs that sprung up in the First World War from the Ministry of Food at Grosvenor House. On His Majesty's service, I wish to appeal for the immediate help of every man, woman and child in my effort to reduce the consumption of bread. We must all eat less food, especially we must all eat less bread and none of it must be wasted. The enemy is trying to take away our daily bread. He is sinking our wheat ships. If he succeeds in starving us, our soldiers will have died in vain. In the interests of the country, I call upon you all to deny yourselves and so loyally to bridge over the anxious days between now and the harvest. Every man must deny himself. Every mother, for she is the mistress of the home, must See that her family makes its own sacrifice and not a crust or crumb is wasted. By a strict care of our daily bread, we can best help the men who are gallantly fighting on sea and land to achieve victory and so share with them the joys of the peace which will follow. No true citizen, no patriotic man or woman will fail the country in this hour of need. I ask all the members of your household to pledge themselves to respond to the king's recent appeal for economy and frugality and to wear the purple ribbon as a token. Really important letter there, uh, highlighting the, the particular problem with bread, and particularly with buying wheat. Uh, I like that thing at the end, James, about wearing the purple ribbon as a token. It makes me think of our recent homeschooling series on the history of ribbons, which I very much enjoyed. Uh, that, of course, oh, is all about, all about orphans. Um, there you are, guys. I hope you've enjoyed our episodes on the history of shopping. I have a, I have a, small, a small thing to end, oh, if I may. I'd love to hear it. You'd love to hear it. OK, I have a small thing. And because I was rereading our little chapter on shopping in our splendid book on the Romans. And I think one of the things we do there is sort of is is not only look at the Romans from the perspective of shopping, but also flip shopping so that shopping itself becomes uh, unexpected. And you can reconstruct the sort of Roman world, which is teeming with retailers of sort of varying sorts. So we can have a look at the kinds of things that we talked about right at the outset of this sort of two episodes. And we look at the, the sort of street sellers. We think about the, the arcades, the streets, the porticos, all of these kinds of things. But actually, if you look at this heady world of commerce, if you look at it very carefully, you can actually find the underbelly of Roman society because there are various ways of thinking about shops with great concern. 
so and sort of moral concern about shops so shopkeepers themselves are seen as dishonest so there's great sort of fear of that there's also a fear of peddlers so hawkers and street sellers are viewed as particularly suspect characters especially when they visited the home to sell their wares without warning it's sort of doorstepping people bars as well bars are all over the place in in ancient rome and they are often seen as areas of disrepute places to avoid and finally what i really want to talk about and this gets us back to right at the beginning of episode one of this sort of pair on shopping which was when we talked about pompeii and we talked about the archaeologists having found that sort of street vendors stall because actually looking at the archaeology you're able to tell so much about the dregs literally the dregs of Roman society and there are two really rich resources of leftover or wasted foodstuffs that allow us to reconstruct everyday shopping habits. This is really where the you have to take your hats off to the archaeologists. One of the richest remains is desiccated remains of food that survive in storage vessels or containers found at places like Pompeii and Herculaneum where they either were either built into the counters of bars or found nearby. And archaeologists have found lentils at the bottoms of brass containers. They found turnip seeds, cooked beans, onions, legumes, chickpeas, walnuts, rice, shellfish. They've even found a garum seller's shop in Pompeii and a jar there which has the dried residue of that really popular fish sauce that was one of the essential elements of the Roman diet. Um, there's also another rich seam of evidence, which is the cesspits and drains of the ancient city archaeological sites. Now, these quite literally show us the underside of shopping. It's quite literally the, the sort of um, debris and faecal matter that sort of in, survives in sedimentary layers. And using advanced techniques, um, archaeologists have recovered microscopic botanical materials and they've basically analysed excrement and latrine environments in Pompeii and Herculaneum and they've recovered the very fruit-rich diet of figs, cherries, grapes, mulberries um, that, uh, that residents would have eaten and they, the evidence that they have is from soakaways in Pompeii um, highlighting prevalence of shellfish in the diet as well. So there we are. There's a sort of we've done a sort of rampage around shopping uh, from the early modern period uh, to the ancient period to the to the contemporary today and the way in which shopping has changed uh, in the light of pandemic. There we go, Sam. Wonderful. There we are. That that's it. I'm I, done. I, I'm done. Drop mic. Very much enjoyed it. Um, thank you all so Spend much for listening. Um, do please listen. To, uh, follow me on social media at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. You can follow the podcast on at Unexpected Pod. Uh, we're also on Instagram. We're also on Facebook. So go there and like us. Leave us a review on iTunes, uh, which would be really helpful. You can check out everything that we have been doing at our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. Look out for more homeschooling history coming your way. And we have a Patreon page. And at these difficult times of lockdown, we are trying to push out as much uh, content as we can. Uh, and any help that you can give us to help cover production costs would be very much appreciated indeed. Thank you all very much for listening, guys. We'll be back soon. Cheerio. Take care, guys. See you soon. <laughs>